0: in a series right now called Continually Devoted. Hopefully you have a bulletin. If you don't have a bulletin, uh, if you would, raise your hand and we'll try to get one to you. I'm going to warn you at the beginning uh, of this uh, sermon um, that it's probably going to be a little bit like drinking from a fire hose this morning. So if you will, I, I just ask if you do your best to kind of stay engaged as best you can throughout throughout the sermon this morning because uh, I, I think there's a lot that we need to do in terms of laying you'll see literally laying a foundation for what it means to be a fellowship for what it means to be continually intensely devoted and obstinate obstinately persistent to fellowship we're in the series continually devoted and and that phrase comes from Acts chapter 2 verse 42, and most of our translations just use the word devotion, but the actual word means continually, intensely devoted, and obstinately persistent to, so it says continually devoted to four things, and we're talking about those four things as a church this month. Four things were the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Last week we started, and we're going to be talking a little bit more about the apostles' teaching as well as getting into fellowship. What you're going to see, I hope, is that these all build on one another and they're all interconnected with one another. And if we focus too heavily on any one of them, then it's easy for the others to disappear altogether and become weak and anemic if they're there at all. So we are um, looking at fellowship, but to do that, we need to lay a foundation. Before, uh, before I do that, maybe maybe an illustration will help. Anybody like uh, the show Holmes Makes It Right or Holmes and Holmes? Anybody watch that show? I think it's on the DIY or TLC or something like that. Anyway, it's a, it's a Canadian builder, or Holmes and Holmes is a Canadian builder and his son, and their whole... The whole premise of the show is they go into houses that have been built improperly, not up to code, not the way they should have been built, and they go in and they tear off the stuff and, and they start to expose all of the flaws of the house and then they make it right. They fix it, they go through, and actually I think that his business is called Make It Right. They go through the house methodically and they look at all the things and how they're supposed to be structurally and make sure that the house was built structurally sound, And oftentimes, that's why they have a show, it was not built structurally sound. In one of the episodes we were just watching, um, they, they had bought a house that they were just going to basically flip and sell for a profit, and when they got into it, they discovered that the roof was not properly supported, and that the floor joists of the second floor were not properly supported, and they had been compromised and cut with holes, too big of holes for plumbing and HVAC and all of that stuff. And... And so they, they decided, which seems ridiculous to me, they decided to go all the way back down to the foundation and start from scratch. Now, if you, were, if you bought a house, you were fixing a house, you probably would think, there's no way I'm doing that. Like, if you bought this building and you discovered that it was improperly built, which chances are pretty good because it was built by volunteers. So, um, you know, you, you, might, you might think, well, there's no way we're going back to the foundation, Maybe to the studs. Maybe we'll go back to the studs and kind of fix a few things. But to go all the way back to the foundation seems a little bit absurd. But if we don't make sure that the foundation is right, which is what he's saying, then it doesn't matter what you build on top because it's all going to come crashing down. Now, um, if you, if, even if you're not artistic, um, you can maybe draw this picture on your, on your, on your page, and it's going to kind of look like a rough drawing of a foundation, a cinderblock foundation. That way, it's a little more interesting. All right, so uh, we've got the foundation, and I'm going to get into that in just a little, a little bit. Then, but most of us, like like he talks about on the show, homes and homes, or Holmes makes it right is that we tend to be focused on what's on top of the foundation, right? The foundation is not very appealing or exciting. So so we tend to be focused on what we want for the rest of it. You know, what kind of siding do we have? What kind of roof do we have? A, you know, a pretty roof that goes up here on top. And, oh, we gotta we got to spend a lot of money on a really trendy, popular front door and we got to have some really nice windows, right? And then, uh, if you look inside the front door, you know we got to we got to have hardwood floor, right? We got we got to have the really nice stuff, and 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 uh, and maybe we don't even look at the foundation at all to even see if all the stuff that we're doing on the house is even going to matter at all. And maybe if you can if you can remember this phrase it'll help it is the foundation not the decoration that counts That's not my phrase, that was a phrase I heard another pastor use when he was talking about this. So, it is the foundation, not the decoration, that counts. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. But before we can really move on to fellowship and understanding fellowship and all that goes into fellowship, we have to have the right foundation, and I think there's some things we really need to dig into and understand so that we can see what our foundation is made of. Now, if, you, if, you don't, if you've never really owned an old house, you don't know this, but there's, there's this thing that happens in foundations. Especially old houses. They get cracks, right? And that's, that's, the, that's kind of the, that's the worst thing you could have happen on your house is if you had cracks in the foundation and it was kind of crumbling underneath us. But if we're going to understand fellowship, we need to actually look and see and, and see what the cracks are in our foundation for fellowship right now, because, because we don't really have foundation how they had foundation in the early church. And so there's something that has created this divide, this crack, that, that, that we're not built on something. Something is not right in the foundation because the house is starting to crumble. And so we need to look at the foundation of our fellowship with one another to see What is going on. And and so I've got a few things. There's some notes, and actually I'll I'll post my notes later on Workplace, and we're going to post the sermon on Workplace to give you these tools to go back over them. And so um, take notes, do whatever you can, draw pictures, keep yourself awake. But I'm going to cruise through my argument this morning, and then we'll finish up. Three important things that we have to understand. These are underlying important things. First is that the world is discipling us. It doesn't feel like it, but that's because they're really good at it. The world is discipling us on a constant basis. When we leave this building, we will be subject to the discipleship of a world that thinks contrary to the church. And this world, the world has spent billions, if not trillions of dollars investing in research to learn how to best disciple us in a way that gets what they want out of us. The world is discipling us all the time. They're discipling us. They're, they're making us think that we're not happy. That, that, that we, that if, if they can make us think that we're not happy, then they, they can say, oh, you're not happy, and if you buy this thing, it will bring you happiness, and we all know how that ends up because we bought those things, and they sit in our garage, and we're never happy. But it's not just, not just the product world that is discipling us. There, is, there are many ideological worlds that are out there in the world today that are also discipling us, that have also spent lots of money researching how to best disciple us to get us to agree with their opinion or their stance or their side on things. Some of these are political in nature. Some of these are uh, even... Uh, social justice issues and that, that, that uh, has been spent a lot of time to try to get us to think a certain way. And I'm going to make some bold statements, and my prayer is that you receive them and not get offended by them, which, by the way, is a product of our culture. If you didn't know that, we're so easily offended because of the culture that we live in. But um, just because you agree with one side or the other doesn't mean that your side is a reliable source of truth. I want to say that again. Just because you agree with one side or the other, with one argument or another, with one issue over another issue, does not make your side the right side. I'm not going to get too deep into that because got really quiet but just because we we agree with one side doesn't make that the right side all it means by the way is that we've believed more of their side probably a lot of us have believed more of the lies from our side than the lies of the opposition and we just happen to be more aligned with one liar over another please don't throw things at me. (laughs) But in our life outside the church, we're constantly being bombarded with discipleship that is aimed at getting us to do things that support someone else's agenda. That's a very important thing we need to understand. We're being constantly bombarded with discipleship that is aimed at getting us to do things that support someone else's agenda. So the world is discipling us. And another thing is that the world has made us cynical to the truth. The world has made us cynical to the truth. God's truth runs counter to the lies of this world, and the world, because we've been so effectively discipled by the world, has made us cynical to the truth, the only truth, God's absolute truth. And so we even react at the idea that there could be something like absolute truth. But God's truth runs counter to the lies of this world, and the world is discipling us with deceitful tactics to manipulate us for its own agenda. So we're, we're, keep, stick with me, we're, we're bridging two ideas, the apostles' teaching and fellowship, and it's all going to come together here in just a minute. The world is discipling us with deceitful tactics to manipulate us for its own agenda, but just because something feels right doesn't make it right. In fact, all that might reveal is the level of discipling that we've received from that particular world of thought. Something might feel right to us because we've been so discipled by that point of view that it feels right. The world has made us cynical to the truth. By the way, being cynical is nothing to brag about. I used to be cynical and really negative, and this is something God confronted in me a couple of years ago. And I've been since, since then in a constant pursuit of trying to be hopeful and optimistic and encouraging like the Bible paints a picture we should be. But I was cynical because I thought it made me look smart. But being cynical and negative doesn't make you sound smart, it just makes you look like a jerk. So, the world has made us cynical to the truth. The third thing is that the only way to be the church is if we're built on the foundation of God's truth. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, I think I've got this one in there for you, says, Consequently... You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, more on that next week, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, that's Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. So we are sitting here gathered together, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. And who was Jesus? What did Jesus say about himself? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, if the whole building is not joined together on this foundation, the foundation without the cracks, which is Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. You might not know this if you're not familiar with, with building, especially in old, old building practices, but this, this foundation, excuse me, and especially in Jesus' day, try to draw a picture here. Um, they didn't have blocks, they didn't have cinder blocks that were built in forms like, like we have today. They would have to find a stone was either a square or they would chisel it down. and there were people who had this as their job, that they just made cornerstones. And the cornerstone would determine this line and this line. And so what the Bible is saying that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, So the whole thing is built on Jesus being aligned with Jesus. And then you have the apostles and the prophets, and you know all of the teachers, that are supposed to be built off of Jesus as the cornerstone for truth. All right, so, so there is what they're saying. So built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. So if the whole building is not joined together on the foundation of Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, and everything is laid out and determined by what Jesus said, then we come back to our picture where we start to have Cracks coming in all over the place, which is how so much of the church looks today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This should sound familiar because we just covered this in Luke, but here it is in a different context. We're going to use this scripture for the next couple of weeks as well. It says, Therefore, Jesus is speaking at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and he ends his sermon with this teaching. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them or puts them into practice may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came. Remember that? The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the winds blew and slammed against the house, but the house on the rock stood firm. Right? Now, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them, so you can hear Jesus' words but never put them into practice, you hear the words and don't act on them, this is what you're going to be like. You'll be like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand. Foolish man built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came down and the house on the sand went splat. Right? The winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and it says, and great was its fall. Great was its fall. We have to be built on the foundation of Jesus as the cornerstone, the apostles, God's truth. By the way, we're going to talk more about this next week, so you're going to see there's a lot of overlap, but, but the storm is not the point of the story. And I think we probably give storms too much credit All storms do is simply test and reveal the integrity of our foundation. If the foundation of our lives and our church is not built on Jesus and the apostles, then the church will fail. Or maybe in your life it feels like right now your life is failing. Well, there are probably some cracks in your foundation caused by lies that were put there by the world and the father of lies in this world. Someday we're going to do a whole series on lies and truth. The foundation of the church is the apostles' teaching, and Jesus is the cornerstone. John chapter 8, I want to get into some lies now. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. Talking to the Pharisees, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own, God sent me. Listen to these questions and these statements he makes. He says, Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you thought I was offensive. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet, because I, Jesus speaking, tell the truth, you do not believe me. Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. This is some really interesting teaching from Jesus. Jesus has, by the way, the the most difficult teaching in all of Scripture that he lays out. Some of the topics in Scripture seem to be only reserved for Jesus to teach, as though it was only the Son who could teach them well. But the language of Satan also is our native tongue. Our native tongue is deceit and lies. See, we don't understand this. We, we tend to think that, well, we're just all good people. Everybody's a good person, but that's not what the Bible teaches. Apart from God, we are evil. Our, our hearts are for ourselves. Our hearts are against God. And it is only through the grace of God that we can come into the kingdom and have the love of God in our lives. Apart from Him, we are evil people. And the illustration we've often used is that if you've been a parent and you had a kid, you did not have to teach your child to lie or to think that everything was theirs. They just did that naturally. But Scripture actually helps flesh this out. It says in Romans chapter 1 that that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Did you catch that? Who suppress the truth. They, They push down the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened you start to see a picture of who we are apart from God? Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and this is a poignant verse, exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. I want to stop there for just a second because it's such a powerful image. We become like what we worship. Did you know that? We become like what we worship. And if we are worshiping the things of this world, then we are literally becoming like the things of this world. But we are not like the things of this world. We are made in God's image, and God designed us to worship Him. And when we worship Him, we become more like Him. And what He wants is for us to worship Him so that we may become more like Him. But the problem is we're being so discipled by the world that we're becoming like the world, and we're putting on the image of the world day in and day out instead of the image of God. And He wants us to look like him. Verse 24 says, Therefore, because they were doing this, because they were worshiping the world, suppressing the truth by their wickedness, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Our native language has been confused to deceitfulness and lying and scheming for our own goods and our own selves. And if we are not extremely, extremely careful, we will bring all of that into the foundation not only of our lives, but of the church that Jesus wants to build, and it will all come crashing down with a big bang. So what is this language then? What is this language of the father of lies? If we want to be built on the truth, then we need to start to identify the lies that are in our lives so that we can have our lives and our church be built on the truth of God. So So what is the language, then, of Satan? If the language of Satan is lying, then what does that look like? I want to point out five things here about what it has to do with, maybe six. I don't have them numbered. First is that Satan isn't just going to slap you in the face with a lie. We tend to think that because Satan is a liar, then he's going to come, and he's going to come and tell you to do something, and you're just not, well, of course you're going to not respond to that because you're prepared for that. That's not how Satan works. He's the father of lies. His native tongue is deception, and so he is very good at deceiving and scheming to get us off track. So we need to start to look for the subtle ways in which Satan's thinking, the thinking of the world, the the lying, deceptive thinking has wormed its way in to the foundation of our church, because that's how he's going to work over time. But this is how Satan works. He does a few really obvious things, and if you can start to look for them, you'll see them in your life. First one is, we've talked many times about Genesis 3.1, where the serpent says to the woman, did God really say? So one of his first tactics is questioning God. He's going to get you to question God, and we see this with Jesus when he's in the wilderness in Matthew 4 3 says, the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Are you really the Son of God? If you are the Son of God, did God really say that you're the Son of God? The result of questioning God leads us to doubt and not trusting. Another tactic is manipulating God. This is a big one in our day and age. Manipulating God. Matthew chapter 4, verse 6 says, If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, and Satan, the father of lies, quotes truth. Did you see that? Satan, the father of lies, quotes truth from God's Scripture to Jesus. It is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. The result of manipulating God is using God for your own advantage. This is what Satan is going after Jesus. He's saying, hey, look, the Bible says that. How many times have we done this in our own lives? The Bible says this. This is what the Bible says. The Bible says, you know, basically, you know, name it and claim it, right? That's one of the big false teachings of our day as well. Well, you can just say something and claim it as yours, and it's going to be yours because the Bible says that he'll give you the desires of your heart. and. What you don't understand is that if you're, going to have, if you're going to ask for the desires of your heart, then God actually has to change the desires of your heart so the desires of your heart are like the desires of his heart. But we don't like that whole thing, so we just want God to give us the desires of my heart. So I'm going to use that scripture, and I'm going to quote it to God in prayer and say, you said you would give me the desires of my heart. And we try to manipulate God into getting what we want out of God, which is what Satan does. This last one kind of seems like it's not us, but if we dig into it a little bit, it is. Offering, Satan offers to make us God. Satan offers to make us God. Matthew 4, 8 says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. Satan says, all this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. you will be, listen to this, the Lord of all creation if you bow down and worship me. This, you, this, this might blow your mind if you're not ready for it, but this is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 3, 2. Satan says, the serpent says, You will not certainly die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is anyone familiar with your Bible? You remember what happened in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 at the very beginning? It says that God made them in His image. And their likeness, and our likeness, he says, and the, the likeness of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in our likeness, he made us. They, Adam and Eve, were already like God. But Satan comes along and says, Look, God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit of the tree that he commanded you not to eat because he knows that if you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Satan will come in and he'll tempt us with something that God has already given us, and he will make it a very pathetic, anemic, awful version of what God intended it to be. The result of this is we make my feelings, God. Everything starts with me, not God. It's all about me. This tends to produce some awful things in the church where we go to God's truth and God's family with ourselves first on our minds. We approach God's community, God's family, with ourselves first. And so we tend to take something like church and make it all about ourselves, or the opposite. We think we can do it on our own. We don't need anyone else. I don't need any community. Another lie that's going to affect us in the church is earning what can only be received. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We cannot earn what can only be received but Satan has done a lot of damage getting us to think that we we can and we have to earn it. One last tactic of the enemy that I've observed as a pastor over the years is that Satan is the father of lies. We tend to know that truth, but he doesn't really have to do a whole lot of lying if he can keep us from even hearing the truth in the first place. If Satan can keep us from hearing the truth, then he's won. If we never receive and hear God's truth, then there's nothing for him to even worry about. These are some of the lies that I think have fractured the foundation of the church. And these are the lies that we need to start getting on our radar so that we can root them out of who we're going to be as the church of Jesus Christ who has built us up for his own purposes and if we don't understand these things that I've been talking about let me kind of bring us back to the ground that we've covered this far if we don't understand that the world is literally discipling us away from God the world is winning right now because the world has way more influence in most of our lives than God does let's be honest Satan, our enemy, the enemy of God, is actively working to keep us from the life that God has for us. So so Satan is also working through this world to keep us from God's best for our lives. And Satan also happens to be winning a lot of this battle because far too Christians are walking in the true joy of Christ. And the only way to be a church that stands the test of time is to be built on the foundation of the apostles' teaching of God's truth and right now so much of the church is crumbling because we've been building the church on the foundation of our personal preferences instead of God's design see we're running the risk right now of building a pretty house with no foundation we're letting the world we're letting deceitful ways determine our approach to church and it's destroying the church we're letting Satan keep us from, from hearing God's truth. We're making the church all about ourselves and what we want. Well, you might be sitting there asking now, well, what does any of this have to do with fellowship? I thought you were talking about fellowship today. It's a really good question. It's a very well-timed question See, not only have we allowed the world to disciple us away from God, we've allowed the world to affect our view of God. Not only have we allowed Satan's deceptive tactics to keep us from the life God has for us as individuals. Pay attention to this. This is where we're going to start digging in deep, especially in the week to come. We have allowed Satan to keep us from experiencing the joy of Christ that can only be experienced in Christian fellowship. We have allowed him to keep us from experiencing the joy of Christ that can only be experienced in Christian fellowship, and so a lot of us may have what we think is a personal relationship with Christ, but we don't have a communal relationship with Christ, and we've missed out on so much. We've built our lives and our churches on the foundation of personal preferences, and the cracks are everywhere, so it's time for a new way of thinking. It's time for a new language. We need to learn the language of God's community. Koinonia. Koinonia. Been having a lot of good inf- good discussions about this with around the church. such a blessing, by the way, to have guys like Rob and Jim and Corby around that just know so much about Scripture to help us get a better understanding. Koinonia, it's a Greek word. It means common. The name of the language that they spoke was Koine Greek. It was the common language. It's what everyone spoke. But when you combine this koinonia with what we're talking about in the context of what we're talking about, And the words continually devoted, it gets pretty, pretty serious. The early church were not just continually intensely devoted and obstinately persistent to the apostles' teaching, which is absolutely important, which there are a lot of people who are continually intensely devoted and obstinately persistent to the apostles' teaching, but not the rest. They were consistently continually intensely devoted and obstinately persistent to fellowship. See, we cannot experience koinonia on our own terms because biblical fellowship is not about personal preference. And if we're not careful, we'll take this amazing thing that God has designed and make it all about ourselves. Now, I want to tell you what koinonia isn't. Koinonia is not coming to church. You can come to church every single week and never have koinonia. Let's be honest. Many of us only make it to church a couple of times a month. Church is no longer something that we black out on the calendar. It's something that's on the list, and if there's something better to do that day, it gets knocked down on the list. Coming to church is not koinonia. And even if we do, which many of us do, come every week. It's not enough to counter the assault on God's truth that we are inundated with in our day-to-day lives outside of this time we gather together. Koinonia is not serving in a ministry. It can happen there. Parts of it can happen there. Being in a small group also does not mean you're having koinonia. A lot of things happen in small groups that aren't koinonia, but it can happen there. These are all good things. This is something we want you to do. We want you to be here every Sunday. We want you to be participating and serving in a ministry. We want you to be in a small group of believers where you're fellowshipping like this. But in and of themselves, they're not koinonia. They are not common fellowship, sharing everything in common. Because we believe the lie that everything starts with me, so there's a lie we've got to identify, right? Because we have believed the lie that everything starts with me, and we don't like being told what to do or how to think. Anyone else in here who feels that way? You don't have to raise your hands. If you're bold, you can. But we don't like being told what to do or how to think. But because we believe that lie, and we don't like being told what to do or how to think, we have robbed ourselves from experiencing the joy of Christ that can only be found in the context of His design. So what is koinonia? Koinonia is common. It is, we're going to start using this, we're redeeming even text speak in our church. Koinonia is life on life. Koinonia is who are you living your life literally on top of? Koine Greek was the common language everyone spoke. Koine Greek. Koinonia is fellowship like common language. Do you get that? Fellowship is common like the common language was. Koinonia Koine is commonality in the same way we have commonality in the way you're hearing my words right now and understanding. What I'm saying, the way we're supposed to have fellowship with one another is the same level of commonality like we have when we're speaking. Also, koinonia is not uh, something that we earn. It's actually something we receive and we give. Here's a few scriptures for you. I promise we're coming coming in soon to a landing. Stick with me just a little bit longer. It's all going to come together here in the last few minutes. See, we receive koinonia, we receive commonality when we receive Christ. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, Paul is speaking, he says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. What is this life? What does it look like? It says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, Bearing with one another in love, this is what Koinonia looks like. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called into one hope. When you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You get the drift. Philippians 2 says, Therefore, If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, we have received koinonia when we receive Christ. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, this should sound familiar if you were on a Bible study on Tuesday night, because this is the passage we covered. If you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, Having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. We're pushing others up. Not looking to your own interests but each of you to the interest of others. See, the lie of the world has says it starts with me and I get what I want out of the church and that's how I'm going to approach church, but that's not the spirit we have received. The spirit we have received is you first, I'm pushing you up, I'm lifting you up because of the spirit that is in me. Romans 8 verse 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. The spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. I thought there'd be more amens on that one. but The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. In Christ, we receive koinonia as a gift because we have received the same Spirit. That means if you are in Christ in this room, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ and you're walking in your relationship with Him, that means we are all perfectly united by that one Spirit. That means when we do things like prayer at the beginning of the service, like we were talking about, that one Spirit should stir up within us something that the Spirit knows someone else needs in the church. We all have a common a koinonia, a common sharing in the Spirit, which is there in Philippians chapter 2. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of the resurrected Christ, literally is alive in each and every one of us this morning. And this Spirit causes us to give, then, koinonia to one another. Look what he says, he says, live a life worthy of the calling. Because of the Spirit that lives in me, now I'm going to give koinonia to you. Even if you have done absolutely nothing to earn it, I'm going to give it to you as a gift because that is what has been given to me. So I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be gentle. I'm going to be patient. Not not hearing these scriptures and say, oh, that's what that person really needs. I know somebody who needs to be humble right now. I know somebody who really needs to learn how to be patient. And boy, God help me bear with that person in love. These are things that I'm giving out freely without any expectation of return. It's not reciprocity. It's given out of the overflow of what God has done in our lives, and it should just be continually flowing out because God is continually producing it in us through the Spirit. And look, he says, make every effort work As hard as you can work. Work as absolutely fiercely as you can work to what? Keep the unity of the Spirit. The most important thing, maybe it's not the most important thing, but it makes it really important. It says, make every effort. He doesn't use that language with anything else in the list, but he says, make every effort. Work as hard as you can to keep The unity of the Spirit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't do anything that promotes yourself. And that that picture there, selfish ambition, is literally running for office like you were running for office. Don't do that. Don't run for office in the church. Don't, Don't promote yourself that way in the church. Don't be all about your own vanity and doing things that make you look good for your own vanity's sake. Instead, Value others above yourselves. And the picture in Philippians is like we've already said, literally pushing one another up. You picture yourself, okay, today I'm pushing that person up, and and I'm pushing over here, and I'm pushing over here, and I'm pushing over here. It is pushing, lifting, valuing one another. I'm raising, I'm pushing others around me up. Not the approach that we have in church today, which is, or the worst one, which is, The leech effect is what I call it. We go in and we suck the life out of a church and we go find a new church to suck the life out of. (laughs) Life on life driven by unity from the same spirit that causes me to look at one another around me and do everything that I can to pursue their interest. So, who are you doing life with in this way? Chances are pretty good most of us aren't doing this at all. And instead of feeling condemned about that, what I'm praying right now in this moment, that the Spirit of God will fill us with hope and optimism that that, man, that is something I want. Instead of feeling, I, I'm not living this way. I don't have any coin to kneel with anybody. Instead of letting that condemn us because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead of letting the Satan, the father of lies, use that to bring us down and weigh us with a burden we weren't designed to carry. Let it be something that the Spirit stirs in our hearts. I I want that. I want that. I, I want what Jesus died to give me. I don't want the watered-down version that the world is trying to sell me on. I don't want the deceitful version that Satan's trying to trick me on. I want the full version of what God has for me. God, give me this koinonia. So this is where we're headed as a church. We are doubling down on these things. We're putting all of our effort into the truth, apostles teaching and to koinonia to breaking of bread and prayer and we're just going to trust that as we go about the business of being that kind of body God is going to use us to do whatever he wants instead of focusing on all the other stuff we're focusing on what God has given us to focus on and that's what this is so some questions and we're going to close you may want to write these down to think about and pray about later how's your foundation How is your foundation? Not other people's foundation, not the foundation of other people in your family, other people in your circle of friends, but how is your foundation? Are there lies that have cracked it? Have you made the church about you? Is church about you and your preferences or is church about the unity of the Spirit becoming more like Christ as we worship Christ? how are you trying to earn the right to be in fellowship with others because a lot of us do this we're trying to earn the right to be in fellowship but let's just maybe we should just stop that and just walk in it but how are you doing that maybe maybe god right now wants to identify some ways that you're doing this in your life how are you trying to earn the right to be in fellowship with others Here's one that might be a little bit harsh, but what are, you do, what are you making others do to earn the right to be in fellowship with you? What lies are affecting how you approach fellowship? Maybe God brought some to light this morning through the common sharing of the spirit that we have in this moment. Could you say that you are continually, intensely devoted and obstinately persistent to life-on-life fellowship? Or are you so negative and cynical that no one wants to be in fellowship with you? An illustration to close. For the first four years of our marriage, we lived up in Longview, we actually just drove through Longview this last week on the way out to the beach. We went to story with my parents who are here from Ohio, and besides, every once in a while, it's important to test your faith and take your life into your own hands, so we like to go through Longview once in a while. <laughs> when we, If you are familiar with Longview, when you get out to the west side of town, out on a I think it's Ocean View Highway or Ocean Highway, something like that. I can't remember anymore. Highway 4 takes you out to the beach if you go there. About 32nd Avenue, which is what our our house was on, 32nd Avenue, you can see there's a Fred Meyer, there's a Les Schwab, there's a Dairy Queen. Well, just a little bit back east on 32nd Avenue is a Lowe's. And they were building this Lowe's when we, when we first lived there. Now, We bought this house a tenth of a mile or less from a train track. Of course, nobody told us how often the train went by or when the train went by, the fact that the train went by at like 3 o'clock in the morning and 5 o'clock in the morning and midnight. But that's just my negativity and cynicism coming out, so forgive me for that. But, um, But then, right about that same time, they started building this Lowe's. And I don't know if you're familiar with West Longview, but it's basically a swamp. And they dug a bunch of sloughs, which are just trenches that go all through that part of town. And as they dug these trenches, that lowered the water table enough that you could start building houses out there. Now, our church was was, was designed by an architect from California who was not familiar with water tables. And they put all of the ductwork for the system, for the whole system in the church, in the floor. And so every time the heat kicked on in the wintertime, the humidity level in the church went up to about 120% because the ducks were constantly filled with water because the water table was so high. But they put in all of these sloughs to try to lower the water table so you could build more houses out there, and they built houses and church and all kinds of different things. But code for a great big building like Lowe's, which is really heavy, tall concrete walls, you know, that they would prop up and tilt up there when they'd pour them and do all of that stuff. They had to do something a little bit different. They, they, you know know what I'm talking about? They had this machine that came in. And this, this this is what our house sounded like for months. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone been around that? They had a pile driver hours and hours on end as they built this building all the way around every stinking wall. Do you know why they did that? Because it's all sand. So even before they build the foundation for the building, they build a foundation for the foundation. You see where I'm going here? As the kingdom and the community of Jesus Christ, our call is to reflect Christ in the way that we love one another. We've been called to be the kingdom of God's marvelous light. For the light to shine, it has to be in the darkness. I mean, the light shines here this morning, we're all gathered together, we're all seeing the light of God, and God is illuminating things in our lives, and we expect that to happen when we're all gathered together, but we as the koinonia of Christ, the commonality of the Spirit of Christ as we gather together, we are also supposed to reflect Christ like the stars that shine in the universe we're supposed to reflect Christ to an unbelieving world in the way that we love one another it says they will know that we are Christians by our love how we love one another and so the point of what we're doing is also not just this holy huddle where we come together and we grow together in our commonality our koinonia with Jesus Christ But God, I think, wants to build a foundation for the foundation so that he can plant us in the sand along all of the other houses that are built and starting to crumble and failing. As as the world fails, he wants us to be there living and shining like stars in the universe so that they may be able to say, What is the deal with y'all? And we can say, we are united and drawn together by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony, by a life that is surrendered unto death. That we have come together and we are united so strongly by the commonality of our spirit that no matter what storms come, we will not be shaken Amen. Let's stand together. Worship team is is going to lead us in a song, and we will uh, sing that song, and we'll take communion together after that song. We invite everyone who is here to participate with us. This is a sacrifice that was offered up for you. If you're in this building, Christ died for you. Even if you don't believe it, that's a truth that is established. I just want to ask if you will bow your heads, close your eyes, and if you're here this morning, you'd say, "You know what? I'm, I'm I've kind of been making church all about me. I've been pursuing." church only for my own purposes, for what I can get out of church. I have yet to make that transition to being in true koinonia with other believers in the body of Christ. I've, I just need to repent of that. If you'd say that to you, if you just raise your hand real quickly and put it back down. I want to pray for us. If you're here this morning and you'd say, you know what, I'm all in. I'm all in on this kind of fellowship. I want to be a part of that kind of community. I'm done playing the games. I'm done participating in in the schemes of the world and and watering down what was supposed to be made to let God's light shine through his church. I'm done with all of that, and I'm, I'm all in on fellowship. Would you just raise your hand? Yeah, you can put your hands down. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your truth. Thank you that it is not dependent on me to determine how I'm supposed to live my life, but that you have decided in advance what is best for how I live and how we live together as your body. All I have to do is learn it. All I have to do is know it. All I have to do is receive it and apply it to my life. I thank you for that. I thank you that it is your truth and not my truth. Thank you that it is your truth and not the truth of this world, not the truth of common opinion, that it is your established truth, the truth on which the foundations of our very earth have been laid. Father, I pray right now in this moment, as the Spirit is here in all of our hearts, who have put our faith in you, that if there's anything, that, that any wrong thinking in our minds that, that we need to repent of, we've approached this whole thing wrong and that you want to change our thinking right now in this moment, in this instant, and you want to lead us out of this place into an entirely new way of living. If there's any of that, I pray, Father, bring that to our minds, help us to lay that down once and for all, sacrifice that, surrender that, never pick it up again. I pray, Father, that we would truly believe that you would replace that faulty thinking with the truth of your kingdom, and that we would live lives of action that actually put our faith into action. And I pray, Father, that that would be the marker for us as your church at six eight. That that we would be that church that so radically loves one another that when non-believers are in our midst or they're around us as we're loving one another outside of this building, as we're literally doing our lives together, living life on life, that they would just say, there is something so crazy and so ununderstandable about how you are loving one another that I'm just drawn to it. What is it about you? And I pray, Father, not only would they see us loving one another in this way, but, Father, that you would give us the boldness and the passion to be able to say, We love one another because we have been so loved. That God so loved us that he sent his only son to die for us and that we're willing to die to whatever we think this life should look like so that he can raise up the real life he had in mind for us from the beginning in us, continually, ever increasing. And I pray, Father, all of this for your glory. For your name's sake, that as we right now turn our hearts, our spirits, our minds, our souls, our entire attention towards you, that we, through this act of worship as a united body of Christ, would become more like you, whom we worship. In Jesus' name, amen.